Thanks for joining us. Coming up, Russia arresting an American reporter accusing him of spying. It's the first such event in nearly 40 years. For the first time ever, a French company buys liquefied natural gas with Chinese currency. Is this the beginning of the end for the U.S. dollar's dominance? Another Chinese app owned by TikTok parent ByteDance gaining popularity. Which app is it? Medical middlemen in the focus at a congressional hearing today. Lawmakers question how much do they have to do with the drug prices going so high? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Good to have you with us. Don Ma here. On Wall Street, stocks ended higher today. Tech-related shares extended their recent strong run, while regional bank shares fell. The Dow rose 141 points, 0.4 percent. S&P added 23 points, 0.6 percent, and the Nasdaq gained 87 points, or 0.7 percent. Wall Street Journal reporter arrested in Russia. Questions are surrounding his safety. Wall Street Journal editor-in-chief Emma Tucker says she's very concerned. Evan Gershkovich was detained on suspicion of espionage in Moscow. He was accused of spying for the U.S., according to Russia's Federal Security Service. They say the U.S. citizen was detained while trying to obtain secret information. The information was reportedly about one of the Russian military industrial complexes. According to the Wall Street Journal, Gershkovich covers Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union. The Wall Street Journal strongly denies Moscow's allegations. White House spokesman John Kirby says targeting Americans is unacceptable. As we've said before, the targeting of American citizens by the Russian government is absolutely, completely unacceptable. And we condemn Mr. Gershkovich's detention, and we do so in the strongest terms. We also condemn the Russian government's continued targeting and repression of journalists. The Kremlin would not comment if this was retaliation. The U.S. actually arrested a Russian on espionage charges last week. Gershkovich is the first U.S. journalist arrested in Russia for spying since 1986. And for the first time ever, a French company uses Chinese currency to buy liquefied natural gas, or LNG. The trade was settled in the Chinese yuan. The two companies involved here are Chinese National Oil Company and France's Total Energies. The Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange facilitated the trade. About 65,000 tons of LNG exchanged hands. China is trying to establish its currency internationally, and at the same time, it wants to undermine the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Russia and Saudi Arabia also have used the yuan previously in their trade settlements. So is the Chinese yuan on its way to replace the U.S. dollar? We get an analyst to weigh in. Joining me is Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. Now, China just did its first trade of liquefied natural gas. Uh, it's settled in, in the Chinese yuan. Now, is this a big deal? Well, thank you for having me. Well, it is a big deal in the sense that nothing's ever like this has ever really been done before. On the other hand, as far as replacing the U.S. either in trade um, deals or as a reserve currency, I think it's really no threat at all. You know, there are two considerations here. There's one for trade and how you price various commodities. And those are all priced in dollars. It isn't absolutely, there's no requirement that you settle a trade in dollars. But in fact, most trades are settled in dollars and they're priced in dollars. That's one aspect of the dollar's dominance. The second, I think, is much more pervasive and far less likely to ever be challenged. And that's the dollar as a store of value. 
It's the Treasury market that dominates the world investment, and that's not about to change. Because it is the most widespread currency in the world, and it has the greatest amount of liquidity. If a, current, if a country wants to hold value, the place to go is the U.S. Treasury market, U.S. markets in general. They're by far the largest capital markets in the world. Even its most closest competitor, the euro, as far as currency goes, has not been able to make much of an inroad against the dollar as a store of value. So that's the biggest reason people simply trust the dollar, because the U.S. is a relatively, compared to the rest of the world, a very open market, whereas other currencies are either too small, such as the national markets in the eurozone, or are not open at all, such as Russia and China. What would you imagine the incentives uh, being for countries using the yuan instead of the dollar? Well, the China's Belt and Road Initiative is sort of emblematic of that. What they're looking for is to spread their influence. So I think the main benefit for countries would be pressure from China for other items, other types of aid that can come out of China, which, if the country wants to access them, would be required to use the yuan for a trade. In other words, if China is going to invest in a bauxite mine or in some sort of resource project somewhere else in the world, they might say, well, once you sell this product with our help and our loan, you have to price it in yuan. That kind of thing, I think, is the most likely scenario for the yuan to move out, not voluntarily, but because of pressure from Beijing. So, Joseph, in the long term, do you see the dollar being replaced? And if so, what would be that currency? Well, I mean, the most likely one thing, I mean, markets work on, on trust. Markets work on belief. And right now, um, the U.S. inherited its world currency position from Britain. Britain and the pound was the the prior international currency. Britain had the largest economy, certainly had a large empire. Now, that has shrunken a great deal, so it's come to the United States, who has the largest uh, economy in the world and certainly the largest overall balance. So what would it take to change that? Markets require confidence in the country and in its currency. They also require liquidity. There isn't any competitor for that right now. The most likely competitor, I think, would be the euro, because it certainly has the credibility and the trust, but it doesn't have a large enough market, because the credit markets there are still segmented by nationality. If the eurozone could come up with a euro bond, then I think that would be the most likely competitor for the, for the U.S. dollar would be the euro in that case. All right, thanks, Joseph. It's always great talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Speaking of threats from China, the big question on Americans' minds, will the U.S. ban TikTok? Heated debate on the topic in the Senate yesterday between two Republican senators. Senator Rand Paul blocked Senator Josh Hawley's attempt to fast-track a TikTok ban in the U.S., arguing the ban would limit free speech. Before banning TikTok, these censors might want to discover that China already bans TikTok. Hmm, do we really want to emulate Chinese speech bans?
TikTok does not operate in China, but Douyin does. Douyin is the sister platform. It's heavily censored and is run by TikTok parent ByteDance. Paul says a ban on the app would be infringing on the First Amendment rights of 150 million Americans and that people should just stop using it if they don't want their data collected. Now, responding to Paul, Hawley said that the First Amendment does not give the right to espionage. He says the app spies on users even when it's not being used. The senator says that Americans can simply not use this app, just turn it off. That's not the case. If you turn it off, it continues to collect information. You don't get to consent. TikTok doesn't ask you, do you want to share your information? It takes it. It doesn't ask you for permission to track your location. It takes it. It doesn't ask you for permission to share it with the Communist Chinese Party. It just does it. That's the problem. Holly has vowed to continue efforts to pass the ban. As TikTok faces a possible ban, another ByteDance-owned app was on the rise. The Lemon 8 app quietly rose into the top 10 app ranking, albeit briefly. Is it a possible backup plan for ByteDance? NTD Sean Marshall has more. Just a couple of days before a TikTok ban was blocked in the Senate, another Chinese app became popular, Lemon 8. Another app under parent company ByteDance moved into a top 10 position. It has a blog style and is a mix of Instagram and Pinterest. Tech specialist Burton Kelso filled me in on how Lemonade is also similar to popular Chinese app Little Red Book. And they want to take that popularity of Little Red Book, which is um, a popular social media network in, in China and Europe, and they want to see if they can have that same success in the U.S. with uh, Lemonade. The New York Times reported ByteDance sent messages to social media influencers to tell them about the new app. Messages said, ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, invites you to become a launching creator on their new Lemonade platform before it officially rolls out in the United States. I mean, do you blame them, though, for coming up with a, another app? I mean, for a large company, it's cheaper to pay an influencer to advertise a product rather than to come up with a large marketing campaign in order to push a product out there. As I mean, you're talking thousands, you know, as far as a particular product where you may be paying an influencer, you know, hundreds of dollars to uh, push a product. ByteDance messages to social media regulars also said that they are using the same recommendation engine that helps TikTok succeed. Lindsey Gorman, a former tech advisor for the Biden administration, gave this assessment of the Lemonade app. According to the New York Times, it's a social media platform like Instagram. It has to do with gathering information on users and it has the same ownership structure, being a child of ByteDance. So I think the same issues are going to come up. Sean Marshall, NTD News. How exactly does TikTok collect data from Americans and how is it different than any other big tech here like Facebook or YouTube? Tune in at 9.30 p.m. tonight on China in Focus for in-depth analysis. Now, turning to healthcare, the U.S. government pays far more per person on healthcare than any other country. Today's Senate lawmakers try to find out why that is exactly. They took turns questioning a panel of experts. The vast majority of the experts blamed middlemen called Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs for short. The PBMs deal with drug makers, insurance companies, pharmacies, government programs, employers and patients, among others. 
Law professor Robin Feldman says ever since PBMs started acting as middlemen, drug prices skyrocketed. Rather than act as honest brokers for the health plans, PBMs have unsurprisingly acted in their own self-interest. And as it turns out, their own interests are not aligned with lower prices. But quite simply, higher prices put more, po- more dollars into a PBM's pockets. PBMs make money mainly through administrative fees and rebates. Experts at the hearing said these are often tied to drug prices. And so it gives PBMs an incentive to make those prices even higher. Many experts at the hearing also went on to criticize PBMs. They said PBMs are driving pharmacies out of business and artificially inflating drug prices. But one expert actually defended the PBMs, Professor Lawton Burns from Wharton Healthcare Management. He's been teaching about healthcare for over 35 years. He says many things are to blame, not just PBMs. PBMs are agents. They're not rogue actors in the healthcare system. They exert leverage over manufacturers in terms of both the volume, trading off higher volumes for lower unit cost. They've used a lot of the same contracting tools for decades. They're considered the whipping boys. In other words, the people who take the rap and get spanked for the evil doings of others. And of course, the lawmakers asked about how to solve the problem. They felt the opacity behind pricing was a big part of the issue. So one common theme throughout this hearing was transparency. Until that is all defined and, uh, and revealed and becomes transparent, um, the rest of the fixes are going to continue to be in a spiral. And until we get transparency in the entire process, we're not going to make headway here. We need greater transparency. I think transparency is an essential first step. Transparency, as many of you have said, seems to be um, an important part of getting the right answer. But even though lawmakers agreed we need more transparency, Professor Lawton Burns continued being the lone dissenter. He said transparency may lead to price collusion. Besides having more transparency, one lawmaker suggested blowing up the whole model. Senator John Thune says the current system is just too complicated and that we should start over. You've got so much vertical integration, so much consolidation of market power, and 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 and, and no transparency has been pointed out a lot of times already. And um, I just th- this to me makes no sense. And and I've tried to study this uh, this supply chain and how this uh, drug pricing works in this country. Um, and I just it, it is incredibly complex. There isn't any other thing product that we buy. Um, in the market that has such a complicated and antiquated um, way of, of getting products to the consumer. Some of the lawmakers are writing legislation to address health care costs. They plan on consulting the experts in private for advice on best steps moving forward. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, the World Bank warning we could lose a decade of global economic potential if countries don't change policies. And low productivity is contributing to the lost decade the World Bank is talking about. Why it could be here to stay, more on that coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. The World Bank is warning that global economic growth could slow, resulting in a lost decade of growth. That is, unless governments make bold policy changes. The World Bank blamed overlapping crises like the pandemic and the war in Ukraine for ending nearly three decades of economic growth. This week, the group said average global GDP growth could slump to 2.2% per year through 2030. But the chief economist said the slowdown could be reversed. To do that, the group said lawmakers should try to tame inflation, reduce debt, and promote climate-friendly investments. And joining me now is NTD contributor Derek Giorgino. He's also a consultant in the greater LA area. Now, Derek, the World Bank saying uh, slow economic growth. What are some possible reasons behind this? Sure. I, I think as the World Bank characterized it as the lost decade, right? I think they've kind of forewarned us that from now through to about 2030, uh, that they believe GDP growth worldwide is going to edge down a bit. I think they said it would average just over 2% a year, which, at least in the United States, when we see GDP growth numbers of below 3%, they're usually looked upon disapprovingly, right? And so I think what it boils down to are the three challenging areas that the World Bank itself called out, okay? One is labor supply. Uh, the other is workforce productivity and broadly investment. But for me, a really concerning cause here is workforce productivity, right? And so <clears throat> in the United States for the past year now reported very discouraging numbers. So. Q1 through Q3 of 2022 saw consecutive quarter over quarter over quarter declines in the non-farm business sector when it comes to productivity. Now is the first time three quarters of decreased productivity had been strung together like that since 1983 when we were really recovering from the uh, infamous stagflation era of the 1970s and early 80s. Um, and then Q4 of 2022, productivity edged up just a bit but was really overcome and more than eclipsed by rising labor costs. And so a lot of industries in the West and in the United States, at least, are quite literally not getting their bang for their buck. They're incurring higher labor and overhead costs. Think about inflation, generally speaking, but rising energy costs, higher pay demands from workers on that front. But then they're getting decreased or stagnant productivity. So in that sense, they really are getting less bang for their buck. And I think it's a huge contributor as to why the World Bank um, and other organizations are warning about uh, lackluster economic growth. Now, of course, all, all this uh, that you mentioned is, is very serious, but do you see this as a temporary problem? Is there a solution? How long are we expected to uh, see this continue happening? You know, I'm not certain that these discouraging trends are long-term or permanent. But I'm not necessarily encouraged, Don, that they're short-term or temporary. Um, with inflation anywhere between 6 to 8% recently, sluggish workforce productivity, um, and somewhat lackluster GDP growth coming out of Q4 2022, above expectation, but still lackluster, um, I think, again, we could be heading towards a light stagflation period. And um, I, I think... The pandemic is definitely a driver, but unfortunately, Don, I think the pandemic drove a deep cultural change in, in the world's uh, workforce culture. And here in the United States, 
virtual way of working, hybrid work styles that were really birthed out of the pandemic um, seem to be here to stay. Us as humans, we're social creatures, right? We want to work and live together. We don't want to work and live in isolation. And productivity is generally higher when we're in person with our colleagues, when we're in person with our project teams or with our clients. Uh, and just anecdotally, I have personally found over the last year to two years that tasks which would normally require you know three to four years to complete virtually take one to two hours uh, you know, in person when we get our, our, our clients and our project team stakeholders together to, to discuss a solution. And so humans being innately social creatures, the pandemic bred a workforce culture to be the opposite. And I think, unfortunately, that's going to have long-term uh, effects on our society. That's all the time we have today. Uh, pleasure having you on and hope we can speak again in the future. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, Don. Look forward to it. Still to come, a peek at one of the biggest watch fairs in the world and some luxury watches at the same time. How's the industry doing amid inflation and economic uncertainty? Soda cans becoming taller and skinnier. Why the change? We take a look after this short break. Welcome back. The Swiss watchmaking industry is thriving, despite inflation and economic uncertainty. In Geneva, a trade show features a variety of timepieces with price tags of up to $4 million. NTD's Andrew Thomas takes us there. Watches and Wonders is one of the biggest watch fairs in the world. All major luxury watch brands are in attendance. Carl Friedrich Scheufele is co-president of Swiss watchmaker Chopard. These expensive timepieces seem out of place with the cost of living crisis affecting much of the world. But Scheufele says, Surprisingly, the watch uh, industry has fared very well. Maybe because people still want to, to, be, to rejoice. Watch industry consultant Jean-Franco Rochelle agrees. Whether it's inflation or the economic crisis, that's all you hear in the media. In reality, the watch industry is doing very well. We have just come out of a record year in 2022. The Swiss watch industry has never exported so many watches. In the first two months, January and February, are so positive. Rolex is showcasing its latest models, including a new generation of Cosmograph Daytona. The model is celebrating its 60th anniversary. One of the most expensive watches at the fair is the Patek Philippe model. The timepiece has a suggested retail price of $4.2 million. I'm not saying that the world is doing well, but in any case, in this world where we often hear negative information, there is the very positive aspect of the top-of-the-range watch which is pleasing and is currently very successful. Watches and Wonders opens its doors to the public on April 1st. Organizers expect 30,000 visitors. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And goodbye short round cans, hello tall skinny ones. More beverage companies are now using slimmer cans. 
Topo Chico, Simply, and Sunny D have all recently launched alcoholic seltzers in tall, thin cans. It's meant to signal to consumers that these new drinks are healthier than the beer and sodas in the old cans. Coke with Coffee also launched a slim version last year. Analysts say consumers see slim cans as being more sophisticated. Now, traditionally, beverage companies opted for the 12-ounce stout can to allow for more room for advertising. But with these slimmer versions, brands can actually squeeze more cans on store shelves in trucks and at warehouses. And that's it from the NTD Business Team today and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, please email us at business at NTD.com. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.